Is Scarborough, Ontario, the dining capital of the world? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Tyler Cowan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragoni, your host, and today I'm speaking with Tyler Cowan. Tyler is Holbert L. Harris Professor of Economics at George Mason University and serves as Chairman and Faculty Director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. With colleague Alex Tabarrok, Tyler is the co-author of the economics blog Marginal Revolution and co-founder of the online educational platform Marginal Revolution University. He received his PhD in economics from Harvard University in 1987. Tyler is also the author of several best-selling books and is widely published in academic journals and popular media. One of his books, An Economist Gets Lunch, New Rules for Everyday Foodies, will serve as the basis for a lot of our conversation today. Tyler, welcome to The Curious Task. Hello, happy to be here. Wish I could be up with you in Canada right now at some point. Absolutely, maybe one day when all this nonsense is over, but it seems to be on, on the downtrend, so that's great. Things are opening back up slowly. Um, today, our question is... Is Scarborough the dining capital of the world? Now, of course, we'll get to exactly that question at some point and why that phrase actually became something you wrote about. But it's also a fun invitation for us to talk about food and your thoughts on how that ties into economics in general. So we'll get to the Scarborough stuff in a sec. But first, I want to talk about the concept of food snobbery. You talk about this in your book, An Economist Gets Lunch. And You say that food snobbery is basically based on three main ideas, that the best food is the most expensive, large agribusiness is irredeemably bad, and consumers are not trusted sources of innovation. And I want to actually unpack those with you here. Like, there is the perception out there that the best food is the most expensive. Where does that come from and why is that not true? Well, many times if you go to a more expensive restaurant, you're not just buying the food, you're buying status, you're buying an experience, you're buying the sense of belonging to a particular kind of cultural class. And look, that's okay. It's a competitive market. If people want to spend their money that way, fine. But I just thought someone needed to step up and say that eating, say, at a really good taco truck or, you know, excellent Sichuan food of the right sort that might cost you 12 US dollars was actually just as enjoyable as your meal for $200 in, say, New York City. And uh, this needed to be deconstructed a bit. So I think, you know, cuisines on average all have wonderful things to offer. They get tiered at these price points, like Chinese food is typically cheaper, but it tastes just as good, maybe better. The idea that large agribusiness is irredeemably bad. It's interesting to note that your book, An Economist Gets Lunch, was written in 2012, if I remember correctly. Um, so, you know, there was, a, especially at that time, if I recall as well, lots of pushback against, what you know, there was the Food Inc. documentary and so on and so forth. But now it's it's many years later. At least I don't feel that as many people feel large agribusiness is irredeemably bad as per that time when there was a lot of talk about that. But it still feels like a perception today. Um, you know, and then later on in your book, you also talk about lo- local vores, like people that only want to, you know, shop locally, eat locally and, and not not get their food, if you will, from commercialized b- big business. So my question to you is, do you still feel that this is a perception that large agribusiness is irredeemably bad? I think the perception has basically remained the same. I think it's true that the targets of the day are quite new and different. Right. So there's a whole set of issues related to race and gender and class 
but the same view that a kind of mobilized neuroticism about everything should serve as the basis for one politics, that anything big and successful had to be bad. You know, these days, Facebook is a more likely target than a big food company. But I think it's the same kind of view. And my view is any big institution is going to have some significant costs, but large agribusiness feeds the world. It's what enables us to support so many billions of people. And insofar as we will succeed in feeding the new people who come along, we're relying on big business to do a lot of that heavy lifting. Right. And and you talked about the sort of the local war thing. Why do you think that's like a mistaken idea overall, aside from the fact that it's important to appreciate that we do get a lot of our food support and, and modern industrial food supply chains and so on and so forth are extremely important to feeding people. But other than that, why is this idea of that being that local war sort of misguided in your opinion? I think locavorism has in fact faded somewhat. Look, if you're living smack in the middle of Arizona in the desert. How can you be a successful locavore? Right. A lot of foodstuffs are produced more cheaply somewhere else, and they're even transported on water in many cases. And you can often lower your environmental impact, your carbon footprint, by trading, which tends to minimize costs. And the idea that you should just eat nearby when like putting the tomato on that truck is just one cost of many, it doesn't make any sense. It was always a kind of posturing. I do think that stuff is faded somewhat. And when you say, again, the third element of what food snobbery is based on, consumers are not a trusted source of innovation. First, what do, what, what did you mean by that? And second, what, why is that the case? Well, I think consumers are really very good at knowing where to go, what to order, uh, how to put condiments on their food. And they do things a somewhat different way than restaurant owners necessarily want. I think that's fine. The fact that a given city or region evolves a particular set of restaurants that are excellent and serve as a cluster, you've got to give consumers a lot of credit for that, not just the chefs. So uh, that's an example of the marketplace working. That feedback cons from consumers is what makes a good restaurant a great restaurant. And you also noted, too, that there's sort of like a cultural management element to this in the sense that, you know, the idea that a consumer cannot be trusted to be a source of innovation. There's all, there's also this idea in, in the snobbery realm, if you will, that, you know, it's, it's the food critics and, and the, the fancy magazine writers and so on and so forth that are supposed to be, I guess, almost like the gatekeepers or the guardians of the opinions of, of what's good and what's not. And ultimately, in your view, that, that they may have an opinion that is valid, but whether it is or isn't. The idea is that we shouldn't be resting these opinions with these folks. Yes. And if you look at an issue like what is the best diet for your health, uh, I'm not sure I know the answer, but I see very sluggish bureaucracies, you know, building these food pyramids, keeping them sta stably wrong for decades. And a lot of individuals stepping up with different ideas. I'm not saying they're all correct or all proven. Uh, but they've been a great source of innovation in getting to improve our diets. Would you add anything to this list now or emphasize one differently since it's been quite a little while since you wrote the book? Would you would you add or change something or emphasize it differently from that, that initial three of food snobbery? Well, I think the food world, since I wrote the book in what, 2012, it's developed uh, pretty successfully in a, a fairly diverse way around the world. We just feed many more people than we did, you know, nine years ago, including in the world's poorest countries, India, Africa, wherever. So I think the case for commercialized food production has never looked better. And I think the book uh, was ahead of its time and still is. Most food writing, it's, it's a kind of left-wing anti-corporatism bundled with elitism. 
about, you know, something has to be organic or avocado toast or, you know, I like avocado toast, but <laughs> there's some way in which you really want to work hard to stop food from becoming a class issue. Absolutely. And I'm sort of in a similar vein to what you just said there. So, so why do you say every meal counts? You know, if you have some freedom in your life, uh, every single one of your meals can be excellent. And why not do it is one of the messages of the book. And I try to give the reader my tips for, for how to do that. Now, it depends somewhat on where you live, right? Uh, there are people who might have family obligations. They don't always have the time to cook or go out. So it's not quite an absolute. But just to wrap your mind around the idea, here's some part of your life that can be like so excellent at a reasonable price. And maybe a lot of you can just do that and don't ever accept less. And when, when you wrote this book, as, as I, I mentioned earlier, it was back in about, about 2012, you noted in, at the very beginning of the book that American food was in crisis. Now, what did you mean by this then, in, in your own words here for our listeners, and do you still think the same thing now after so many years? Is American food still in crisis, or or, or, or what would you say about that statement at this point in times? Uh, that's a very good question. You know, I don't remember what I meant when I wrote that. But possibly what I meant was that writing about American food is in crisis and theorizing about American food is in crisis. I think American food was doing pretty well in 2012. Uh, COVID and pandemic aside, it's, it's doing great now. I think, you know, with the pandemic, uh, American restaurants have reinvented themselves, a lot more outdoor dining, new seating patterns, different innovations in food delivery, amateur cooks. I think we're seeing this phenomenal blossoming of innovation due to the pandemic, and I hope a lot of it sticks. We'll see. In the book, you also present a bit of history of, of the American food and how it developed. You talk about how the culture changed and so on and so forth. You take issue with the idea that it's often, and that's often put out there, that dark spots in American or North American food culture are because, again, as I was saying, of mass production and commercialization. And, and you, in, in your bit of your historic, like you talked about today, but in your historical tour as well, you talked about the fact that, you know, yet, yes, there was, you, you know, different industrial meth methods coming about for, you know, like canning or, so, or something like that. And then this was very much put into the American family and family life. But you also note that people often forget that there's a cultural side to this too, right? You talk about how the American family changed and so did their habits. TV was an example, the TV dinner and so on and so forth. Um, so, so my impression of what you were saying there is that had not totally to do with it, but this is a this is a blind spot in many people's uh, minds, isn't it, about what they're considering how food changed. And in the United States, we made a huge mistake in the 1920s of basically cutting off immigration. And as you would know from Canada, if Canada had not taken in many more immigrants, your food would be much, much worse. So we, we ran that experiment from 1920 through 1965, and then it took a while before we could catch up again with immigration. And we had prohibition, uh, which banned alcohol, put a large number of quality restaurants out of business. Uh, the world wars did not help food quality any. And I think those trends are responsible for a lot of what was bad about American food or North American food. Uh, we've reversed those. And now the United States and Canada, they're two of the best countries to eat in in the whole world, especially if you value diversity. Sri Lankan one night, you know, Hunan, real Hunan food, another South Indian. And then you want North Indian for lunch the day after. Uh, I'm not sure there are two better countries to live in. Again, not in every part, but significant fractions.
of North America. From a different angle here, I mean, like we, we both probably agree that, again, you know, big business and, and large supply chains for food are certainly not the enemy and have done a lot of good. But but aside from that point, too, do you think that it, it's very easy to take for granted how far food production and supply chains have come over, over the many decades? Like, you know, when you think of all the, the technology involved, for instance, to like refrigerate something and move from point A to point B and how at the end of the day, you can enter a superstore with all these different varieties of food, canned, boxed, fresh or, or, or whatever. I find that you know, just as a manner of speaking, that even people that are proponents of markets and that think that big agribusiness and so on and so forth are good things, it's even easy for us to underrate this. It's, it's still very exciting stuff and innovations happening every day. Yes. And as a cook, I see this as well. We've talked mainly about restaurants, but if I want to order, you know, more or less authentic ingredients for a wide variety of cuisines, that's far better developed than when I wrote the book. And I wouldn't say you can get everything but it's amazing how much you can get. It doesn't cost very much. It's delivered reliably. And that too is part of mass culture, just reliable, regular delivery to your house. Whether it was you know, the early Sears Roebuck catalog or now Amazon, uh, that's a big part of what makes food so pleasurable. You can get things. You know, Every Thanksgiving, we order barbecue from Texas. They send it frozen. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same price as in the restaurant. The shipping charges, I mean, it depends how much you order, but it's maybe about 50 bucks. You order a large amount, you eat from that for a week or two, and you get real Texas barbecue. Absolutely. Yeah. And and just back to the technology point, right, too, like a lot of the stereotypes about like, oh, you don't want frozen food or you don't want flash frozen food or whatever the case may be. You know, maybe that was true at some point. But even even today, some of those categories of food that had been stereotyped as stuff you don't want to go near the technology and the methodology behind bringing that to people's plate, even freezing things is, is so much better now than it was before and is ever improving that as you were noting, it's it's quite interesting what you can get frozen. It's quite interesting what you can actually get on an airline now, <laughs> frankly, a lot yeah. things have just improved overall. Or in airports, even. There's excellent food in most of North America's airports, with exceptions. Uh, and that was far less the case 10 years ago when I was writing the book. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, it's also interesting, too, because you mentioned immigration and culture. It also seems to be interesting to me what is considered foreign and not like one of my friends, um, a little older than I am, he basically said that in his lifetime, what was considered foreign or something harder to get or even like a genre of food the fact it just becomes a little more ubiquitous with the culture that's a quite an interesting thing too to trace over anybody's lifetime really like you know if something had been new and fresh and maybe a little off to the side or off to the mainstream just with cultural changes and people getting more used to things and markets at work these things can just become quote normal in our society and i think that's very interesting when you look at how restaurants form or certain genres pick up in popularity and so on it's like how you know the indian dish butter chicken is now really more English than Indian. And it's a kind of national dish of many parts of England. I don't myself like it so much. Uh, you know, donor kebab, part of what was done with the bread comes from Germany. Uh, a, a lot of the inspiration from the dish comes from Turkey, earlier Ottoman Empire, but it's synthet synthetic creation. Turkish immigrants in Germany changed it, made it different. So we see this more and more, you know, the hamburger. Well, where exactly is that from? Pizza. And you could read debates and you can argue, well, what was the first place? But those now have identities of their own in many different countries of the world. And it's often excellent. 
So, so far in our chat together, we've talked about food itself. Your book also, of course, talks about how to find good places to eat and, and talks a bit about that. One interesting idea and something I enjoyed reading about was this sort of idea of cross-subsidization, how businesses and locations support each other. And that's something that we should pay attention to. For example, you talked about casinos and restaurants. And in some cases, for, for some folks, you know, the casino is subsidizing the restaurant. But with other folks, it's, it's the other way around. Um in your own words, can you explain a bit more of that cross-subsidization idea for our listeners? I talked about it a bit, but I'd like you to get into that a little bit. I found this very fascinating. Well, I think restaurants on average are better when you have a lot of customers coming together to an area. So if you're in Las Vegas, there's wonderful, wonderful food in Las Vegas of many different kinds. And for the most part, that food is there because people visit Las Vegas for some mix of gambling and entertainment. So there's a cross-subsidy going on. But in, say, New York, uh, the financial district is cross-subsidizing very good restaurants for people such as myself visiting from outside. Uh, universities cross-subsidize food, not always for the better. Sometimes it leads to a dumbing down of food. Eating right next to a university, often I don't recommend. Uh, but someone has to pay the bill. Who are the people who go in? and order the expensive drinks that might keep a particular place up and running. I can tell you it's not me, right? Someone else with some other purpose. And I'm benefiting from that and not having to pay for it. I especially like the idea in that section you talked about, um, for instance, now specifically regarding the location of restaurants or location of places to eat, that you talked about the idea that places with perhaps the nicest views or the most special locations might actually turn out to be the worst places to actually eat and actually get a certain quality of food. Can you get in, can you reveal to our listeners why you were talking about that? Because when I read that, it, it made a lot of sense to me. And I've had bad experiences in great locations as well. But, but why is that the case? Well, people will go to those places anyway for the view. So the food doesn't have to be good. And a lot of people either don't know the difference or don't care. So a place that seems to have no other virtues at all uh, often has the very best food. So there are restaurants, you know, they overlook Niagara Falls, say, and they're just not going to be your most memorable meals from a food point of view. But if you want to see the falls, obviously go do it. Uh, there used to be a restaurant, you know, on the top floor of what was then the World Trade Center. It was okay, but again, you're going there for the view. So I also make the point if a restaurant has too many beautiful women or beautiful men, uh, the, overall, that's a negative signal. You know, it might mean the place is like pretty good because it's appealing to higher incomes or more educated uh, diners, but those are not the best places, hardly ever. I would say stay away. You're paying uh, for the look. If I remember correctly, I think in your book, you you had copy and pasted someone else's review that you found. You said, here's somebody's review of a restaurant. And it was something like uh, great, view, great, great view, great vibe, great something else. Oh, and the food was, was great too. Like at the end, you know, <laughs> that's, that's yes. the point you're making here, right? You want cranky people to love the food. And if you see cranky people enjoying the food and not smiling, that's a wonderful sign for a place to eat. That, that's that's one really good way point. to invert that formula. Look for the cranky people and follow them. 
Yeah, and and you also talked about um like getting away from Google for the masses. I like that point too. Don't don't go search best restaurants in such and such city. You're gonna get play uh you know if you are looking for the best food, you're gonna get people talking about maybe the best view or the best vibe or whatever. You you talked about different ways to be very specific. Even if you go so far as you know searching for something like best cauliflower dish here, even if you're not looking for cauliflower, you're saying you're gonna get someone who's gonna be talking very specifically about the food. I I, I enjoyed that tip. You know, uh, online reviews are gamed much more now than when I wrote that particular chapter. So it's a bigger problem. I just completely ignore like number of stars. Just look for the two or three longest and smartest reviews and see what they say and disregard the rest. You know, in general, the internet, I don't know, also with pandemic, a lot of reviews are just out of date or people get upset over, you know, minor events. And you just want to hone in on the few good reviewers and see what their opinions are. I saw someone leave a review for uh, it wasn't restaurants irrelevant. It was some somebody had a nice station like artisan stationery and pen shop in Toronto or something. Someone left the the poor guy one star because he said, "I can't believe that this place is closed. I completely disagree with the government policy." <laughs> this has nothing to do with the the poor businessman. It just had to do with the government, right? Yeah. And speaking of reviews and star ratings and things like that, um, what? I, I think I know what your answer is going to be based on the, the beginning of our conversation. But but what what do you make of um, let's call it elite opinion that is specifically supposed to be reviewing the food. Like, I agree with you, for instance, if you see a review uh, in some sort of column in a newspaper that's trying to be hoity-toity about the waiter waiter in the service and that kind of thing and, and might turn their nose up at a smaller mom-and-pop restaurant or something like that, even if the better food is indeed there. But what about something like the, the Michelin Guide, for instance, where they claim that, you know, the, they're they're reviewing what's on the plate. Like, they, they don't care if it's in a slum or or if it's in a in a hoity-toity area. They're, they're going to review... Uh, it, it for the food itself. Do you still think that if there's a resource like that out there, it's still worth looking at? Or do you still think of that as at the end of the day, that that's food critic, cultural management stuff? It's elite opinion. The Michelin guide has changed rapidly. Uh, right now, you can't trust it. So if I look at the guide for Washington, D.C., the area where I live, it's garbage. Hmm. They're completely grading on a curve. What they call a three-star restaurant is maybe in France, a one-star restaurant. And most of the places they praise, I mean, they're not bad, but it's meaningless. And I would just say you're better off not looking at it at all. But I would say this, if you're in France, Italy, Germany, small number of other locations, basically West Central Europe, the Michelin guide for what I call two forker restaurants is superb and pretty reliable. And those are restaurants typically that have been there a while. They're not the most expensive. They don't have a star. They're maybe not original, but they're serving cuisine of that region and they steadily get two forks. The guide is fantastic for those and still reliable. But the stars is like a cult and you overpay. And I would say in Europe, the two forker restaurants are as fun and as enjoyable. And it doesn't all have to be original to you. Like you don't live there. Like when you go, it will be original, even if it's the dish that's 80 years old. So go for the two forkers. The guides can be great for North America. Throw the guides out. They're a negative. That's a good tip. I think you, you can avoid you can avoid the uh, the three the three Michelin star prices in Europe by going for just all the other stuff that even doesn't have stars, but it's in the guide and still have an excellent dining experience and food experience. Ultimately, I would say the starred Michelin restaurants in Tokyo, those are highly reliable. OK, and they're some of the best meals on planet Earth because it's Tokyo and Japan. And that's another case where the guide works well. 
but you know, in New York, to get the best pizza in Brooklyn is better than eating it like a one-star restaurant on the Upper East Side, I think. When it comes to specific types of food and different genres and so on and so forth, I want to talk a bit about, quote, Asian food specifically right now because you, you have you have a love for it. Specifically, and I want to touch on this first point here, you emphasize in your book that there's really no such thing as, for instance, Chinese food or any generically named food when it comes to a certain nationality. And for those of for those folks that aren't really familiar with that concept, can you elaborate a bit on that? What do you mean that there's really no such thing as like Chinese food? Or if someone says, even as an Italian myself, I'll say there's really no such thing as like Italian food. So what, what did you mean by that? Well, China has 1.38 billion people, so many different regions and groups. And, you know, what's a dish depends where you are. So, you know, I love Sichuan food. I've been to Chengdu in China a few times. And one of the dishes I loved, it's called Sichuan chili chicken. It's like Sichuan. I was in Sichuan. I'm in Chengdu. I asked for Sichuan chili chicken in English and Chinese with photos. They look at me like I'm crazy. Finally, someone says to me, oh, that's not a Chengdu dish. That's a Chongqing dish, which is fine. I got it several times on another trip in Chongqing. In Chengdu, it's simply not to be found. So like even Sichuan food is not quite a thing. And uh, the tastes vary as much, you know, as across Europe. So why call Chinese food a thing? Unless sometimes it's for convenience, but mainly it's not. So we're, we're sort of duping ourselves a little bit when we talk, especially in North America and Canada, if we're like being too general with our addressing of certain genres of food, we might be robbing ourselves of a certain experience if we think of Chinese food as in sort of a box in our minds. It's, it's these four sort of staple items and that's that. And a good recipe for finding a place, if there's a Chinese restaurant that is explicitly regional, like there's a place in my town, it's called Nanjing Bistro. It's food from the city of Nanjing. And a lot of it is from Nanjing, the recipes. I've been to Nanjing and it's excellent. You just don't get someone doing Nanjing food unless they're serious about it in some way. Now you need to beware of places that are called Sichuan and Hunan and are really just drippy glop over fried fat. And they're not Sichuan at all. They're just like American food, actually. But real Chinese regional food, when you see it, always go to that restaurant. Similar vein, and you mentioned it before, and I didn't really get into it because I did want to save it for a little later in the chat. You talked about how immigrants are important to adding to the food culture of a country. Which, which immigrant groups historically do you think have had some of the, I'm not going to say most important because they're all important, but some of the biggest effects on food in North America? Well, you're saying North America, and that makes it tricky. So for the United States, Mexico is extremely important. Uh, obviously, not so much the case. Canada. In recent times, the biggest gains have come from Chinese. Earlier, U.S. food was more typically a bland style of Cantonese, not actually that great. Uh, but I think overall for this country, not all regions, but I would say Mexico and Mexican food. For Canada, uh, it's more diverse. So it's harder to pick out one group, but like your Eastern European, Hungarian, Ukrainian foods are, are way better than in the States. That would be one example. You have all kinds of Caribbean foods, Trinidad, Jamaica, that are way better. Uh, your Haitian can be better. Your Portuguese food is definitely much better, would be some examples. I think your Vietnamese food on average is much better than in the US. Thai food, you used to be better. I think maybe by now we've caught up. That's perhaps a Thai. Uh, 
just a lot of particular cuisines where Canada is better than the U.S., in my opinion. You're, you're a pretty well-traveled person. You've been to many countries and obviously you've been to many different places in Canada. Did you, uh, have you ever got uh, the chance and did you notice yourself enjoying the sort of contrast, for instance, if you head to like a Quebec city and have a very French meal served by people that are very Quebec French versus going out west to have a, ni- a nice steak by very Western people? Yes, very different. I mean, even Quebec City or Montreal, I don't know if I would quite call it French. It's French Canadian. It's really not not what you would get in France. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's no part of Canada I've been to that isn't wonderful to eat in, I can say. And I've been to a, a chunk of the Western cities, not all of them, never been to Saskatchewan. Uh, and then your kind of suburbs of your cities are excellent. Filipino food in Canada is excellent. Indian food, very good. Maybe like on average, Portuguese would be my first choice since we have so little of it here. Uh, I would love for either of our countries to have more great Indonesian food. That's a huge gap. I think Japanese food, it depends on the city, but it's not that dependent on the country. But probably like New York, LA have better Japanese food than Canada. People think Vancouver is the best Chinese food in North America. I'm not sure I agree. It's it's in the top tier, but it's a kind of Cantonese where I think China is better. And I actually prefer some of the stuff outside of Los Angeles as a first choice. Speaking of suburbs, you just mentioned, so and this is the namesake of our episode today as well. And in, in 2015, you wrote about you're wondering if, if Scarborough, Ontario, and for those who might not know, it's basically just outside of Toronto, a suburb in Toronto, you could think of it as that. You said Scarborough, Ontario, of all places, might be the dining capital of the world. And I know you're having fun with this thought, but but you seem pretty serious about it. So, so what led you to think about this? Well, I had fun with the thought because I think it's true. Now, to be clear, I haven't spent much time there. I spent a day there. Uh, when I was visiting U Toronto Scarborough, but I was taken around to numerous restaurants where we sampled different dishes, and I saw a large number of strip malls. And I feel you can, in general, tell how good restaurants of immigrants are by looking at them. And the four meals I had were all incredible. And I just saw like a hundred places I really wanted to eat in, and there's diversity. So all the different foods I could think of at some point, you know, I saw in driving around Scarborough just in a day. And the price points were incredible. Places seemed like friendly and nice and clean. So I don't know that there's any single town that I would put above Scarborough. And I'm fully serious there. I'd rather eat in Scarborough than Toronto, assuming I had a car. Fair enough. And it's about that time. We're going to take a quick break. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Tyler Cowan today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Ben Hobbs, Christopher McDonald, and Daniel Beer. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. What makes you think in general, because you mentioned it a few times, and Scarborough is sort of like a proof point of it in, in a way, what, what makes the suburbs good places to eat in general? Well, it's really immigrants, right? No other reason. 
in the United States, a lot of immigrants are attracted to the suburbs because the schools are better and the rents are cheaper. So it's going to depend where you are. Uh, traditionally, immigrants went to cities, much less true than it used to be. Or even if they do go to Canadian cities, they seek out parts and aspects of Canadian cities that are somewhat suburban, like outskirts of Toronto and so on, a lot that's more suburban parts of Los Angeles. So I just think that's where the real arbitrage opportunity is to get away from the tourist sites and eat with the quasi-suburban immigrants. Where people actually live and maybe even work if they have their own little restaurant business. It doesn't work so well in Europe. Mm-hmm. So like if you want what you would call ethnic food, it's a bad name, but ethnic food in Europe, like go to Berlin, you go to the less central parts or go to Paris, you might go to Northern Paris, less central parts. But I don't think the suburbs in most of Europe really work for getting good ethnic food. It's the dumpy distant parts of cities, like the best Ethiopian food in Rome. It's quite far, you know, from the Colosseum, but it is still in Rome. You wouldn't go to a suburb of Rome. So you've just got to think through where you're at. Why do, why do you think people in general have a grander idea of these bigger cities and these metropolises of food and these these urban centers and and don't really want to think about the suburbs as a place to go, like a, a place like Scarborough, for instance? Is, is this just back to be, being sort of guided and absorbing by osmosis the, the sort of elite opinion and the snob opinions? Are we all sort of snobs by osmosis? A lot of it is class and status. So a lot attractive young people, thin people live in cities. Suburbs, people might be older, married with kids, life is less glamorous. Some of it is just practical. If you've never been to Rome, like you go to see the Colosseum, nothing wrong with that. You're probably going to eat not too far from the Colosseum. That's your choice. I'm just telling you, you're not getting the best stuff. Someone needs to tell you that someone is me. Fair enough. Happy to have you tell us that. And let me flip it around. Just ask, can you think of any type of food or category of food that you were saying, actually, no, that you want to be in a, in a city for that rather than the suburbs. I'm thinking, I don't know, like, you know, like, is it better to make sure you're having a hot dog down in downtown New York? Like, I'm just thinking, can you think of any counterexample? Absolutely. Japanese food uh, is strongly much better in the wealthy parts of cities. You know, the markups are high anyway. The ingredients are very expensive for very good Japanese food. So the kind of fancy, expensive parts of New York City and downtown Los Angeles are excellent for the best Japanese food. It's super pricey, but that is the way to eat Japanese food. And uh, suburbs will be okay, but not what I would recommend. And as I mentioned before, you've, you've traveled to many places, many different countries, many different cities. In your experience, can you think of, and this might be a bit fun here, but if you will, the most overrated city when it comes to cuisine. Like you've been to, for instance, New York, Tokyo, Paris, and Roma. I'm assuming that those are some of the big ones and definitely some other ones. Can you think of one where you say, you know, you know, there's probably a bunch that are average and what you'd expect and probably in line with our conversation here today. Can you think of any where you say, well, well, that was crap? Well, I think it's pretty easy and I, I may insult some people here, but first Paris is by far the most overrated food city that I know. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, You know, the three-star Michelin restaurants there, they are mostly fantastic. But A, they cost a fortune. B, they take all night. And C, so, so often, again, pre-COVID, you can't even get in. So it doesn't do you any good. And actual, like, dining on the street, walking around in Paris, you're going to get screwed. Overpriced and not that good. Highly likely. Uh, Rome, too many tourists go there. 
there are good places. They're hard to find. Uh, I'm not even sure Rome is that highly rated, but I think Rome is not a great city to eat in. I would say the same about Venice or Florence. Rome, Venice, and Florence, the three most popular tourist attractions in Italy, right? They're by far the worst places to eat. And any mid-sized town of like 80,000 people, kind of anywhere will just be amazing. And Sicily and near Naples would be the best stuff, in my opinion. So uh, the overrated food towns are the famous ones. And if I find myself stuck in one of those and stuck in a, in a food sense, obviously there's other great things to see there. What would your sort of one tip be at the very least, for instance, uh, maybe spot a local and follow them without stalking them, of course, and seeing where they're going to eat, maybe end up at a nice deli or something like that? How, do, how would we handle that situation? Well, if you're in Paris, the thing to do, and I typically do this, is to go to a food market and buy amazing cheeses, fruits, breads, smoked salmon, whatever you like. And it won't be cheap, but that will be reliably excellent. And it's maybe something you can't get where you live so easily, even if you live in New York City. So that would be my recommendation there. Uh, if you're in Rome, just get as far away from North Americans as you can and take your chances. We, we talked a little earlier as well about, uh, you know, especially in the suburbs in, in North America, Canada, U.S., di different types of foods, obviously. But you, you were saying you could find a lot of good stuff. We, we talked about Scarborough. Again, most people don't think of Canada and the United States, you know, as a, as a places for good food. And I'll ask the same question I did again about the, with the other thing. Is this just again the sort the sort of snobbery by osmosis stuff? Is this thing thinking of the the cities of the world again with with you know as you said the the attractive people and and, and different sort of industries in certain city that make us think it just happens to be better there for food as well? Well, why when people think of hey I'm going to go out to to find a great meal in Canada, I don't think much of the world thinks like that. That's all true, but I think there's like two other reasons. Uh, the first is most of North America, it doesn't receive that many tourists relative to native population. So things aren't set up for tourists. They're set up for local people who know things. So if you're in Scarborough, like you don't even know to go there, for one thing. You kind of don't know what to do. Uh, it's not like you know visiting the, the food cities of Ireland or Tuscany, where there are guides. Maybe the guides are somewhat too much in the touristy direction, but you can find out certain things in a systematic way, or you go to San Sebastian in Spain, kind of everyone knows what to do. And then I think the other is a lot of the best food uh, around here is in the suburbs where you need a car. So like Northern Virginia, New Jersey, two of the best food areas in my country, but you definitely need a car or just spend a lot on Uber. And visitors just don't usually do that. They don't know to do it. It costs more. A car, where do I go? It's easier now with Google Maps, but it's just not the first instinct of people who visit New York to say, hey, let's go to New Jersey and dot, dot, dot. Like, no, they're not going to do it. it. And other than Scarborough, if I was to take you right now and, and, and drop you in any city of your choosing for a meal or any suburb, what's the first thing that comes to your mind other than Scarborough? Where would you want to be right now for a good meal? Well, right now I want to be in Canada because you, you all won't let me in. And I understand why. That's fine. But I'm dying to go back. And you have to ask, like, where haven't I been? So I love the food in Nova Scotia, seafood, and I've never been to Newfoundland. And that's next on my Canada list. And I feel if I went there, that would pose for me new food challenges. Like right now, I don't know what to do in Newfoundland. But I strongly suspect there's some wonderful things there. And that's where I want to be. I, I like the challenge of not already knowing. And you, meant, you mentioned uh, 
Google Maps and, and you sort of just said like uh, to the side and things are easier with Google Maps now. But before we completely pass over that point, do you feel that the more that tech mapping technology improves, like, for instance, you know, 10 years ago, the idea that you could drag a little marker and drop on to a street view of something and basically be able to plan an entire journey in advance or, or scope out for yourself without having to deal with a guidebook or someone else's opinion where you might want to go. Um, do you feel that this is from an information, I'm thinking like from an economic perspective, information and knowledge perspective, actually been a ver very liberating feature? Or do you think people, you know, fall into analysis paralysis and want to plan and experience too much? From a dining perspective, the amount of information that we have at our fingertips, how do you feel about that? How does that transform people's taste, do you think, in your observation? I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, overall, clearly it's a blessing. And when I'm with my wife, we do that a lot. And she does the Google Maps and I drive. But if I'm on my own, I never use it, and I deliberately don't use it. I just want to find things, pound the pavement, or drive around. And to me, that's more rewarding, this idea of the challenge, the narrative, the fun. And I do very well that way. I don't feel I need Google Maps. I don't want it planned out for me. I like the serendipity of discovery. So at the margin, I guess I think smart people should use it somewhat less. But, I, you know, I'm very glad we have it. In your opinion, what's the most underrated cuisine or style? Well, underrated by whom, right? I find large numbers of very smart people don't know how wonderful food in Sicily is. It is possibly that. Uh, food in Malaysia, again, I'm not sure it's widely known that it's probably the best food in Asia. I think food in rural Mexico is very much neglected. That is incredible. Uh, those would be the picks that come to mind. But every country has something. Latin America in general is way underdiscovered food territory. Like nothing there is spoiled by tourists or very little. And each and every country, amazing stuff. And on the flip side, uh, how about the most overrated? And, and you correctly said it depends who you're talking to. So, so in general, in your experience, I'll say with the kind of folks you, you hang out and talk to, can you think of a, a basket of, of countries or cities that you think of, or excuse me, sorry, uh, cuisine styles? or genres that you find are like overrated. Like so every, you find too many people, for instance, saying, oh, I'd, I'd really die for X type of food. And it's been like the seventh time that week or something. Or is there something you think that people seem to can't get enough of? But in your but in your personal opinion is like, yeah. I think a lot of deli food is overrated. I think we're, we're now at the point where a lot of barbecue is overrated. And I love barbecue. You had a whole chapter on it. Very, yeah, very best barbecue is way underrated. But there's so much kind of pretty good barbecue that, once you've had it enough times, I just think it's boring unless it's superb. But two other picks for underrated, I forgot to mention. One would be Poland, and the other would be North Macedonia. Uh, just having wonderful food, and you don't hear about either one that much, but both are kind of food paradises. Are there any demographic, economic, uh, you know, Im specifically immigration trends? Or, or actually anything else, frankly, happening right now that you think how the state of U.S. food will look in, into the future? Do you, I mean, you, you keep an eye on this stuff. Do you have any any hunches? Is there any groups or of people that you think might be coming in, depending on things happening in the world, that you say, okay, that actually might, you know, of course not immediately, but eventually produce some sort of cultural shift? Well, the biggest switch has been rise of Chinese immigration, and that paid off very rapidly. But I think the immigration policy of my country in the future is a little up for grabs. And I'm a bit worried. We have a number of cuisines such as Korean, Afghan, Ethiopian that right now are excellent. They're cooked by people not too many years removed from their home countries. 
but I'm not sure how much those immigration waves will be replenished, actually. So uh, there are always some cuisines that are getting worse and no one wants to talk about it. It's difficult. And I think Canada is more likely to maintain a high rate of immigration, which is higher than ours to begin with. But that seems more politically stable. And in, in, in your personal experience, whether it's in your city or, or ones close to you, what, what, which ones do you think are suffering? You're saying there's a couple in decline and people might be in denial about that. What, what are you thinking when you say that? Well, El Salvadoran restaurants were much better 15 years ago than they were today. We had a large wave of El Salvadorans come from the Civil War. And it was wonderful for food, but it's it's gone stagnant. There's still some very good ones, but it's not better. And uh, Vietnamese food, where I live, is somewhat worse than it was 20 years ago. Same thing. You had a big wave come in the 70s, did wonderful things. It's not gone, but it's stagnant. It's probably peaked. It might be replenished. Uh, I don't see that happening. We run that risk with Korea. South Korea is a great country, well off. We're just not going to get those immigration waves that we used to. That's fine. Good for them. Uh, but that, too, in this country could easily become worse. We'll see. Not a guarantee, but I have my worries. And, and one more question here, Tyler, before we head to the formal wrap up and close off our chat today. I want to ask you, and it would be unfair for me to ask you for just one answer to this. So, so a, a few is fine. I want to ask you what your favorite food experiences have been. What what immediately comes to mind when I ask you about that? Can you remember a couple of key times in your life where something hit the palate and you went just, damn, this has to be one of the best moments in my life. Can you, can you name a couple of those that stick out in your mind? Well, one thing I would recommend to everyone, if you speak some Spanish, is to go to off the beaten track places in Mexico and pay families to cook for you. And I've done this a number of times, often in quite rural areas. And these are things not in any restaurant. They can only be done in that local village. And they can be phenomenally good. Just a simple thing like a blue corn tortilla or a bowl of beans or some kind of mole or barbecue for that matter. Just mind-blowingly good. And you're eating in a person's home. Again, you do need to know Spanish. They're not going to know English. Uh, Those are some of my most memorable food experiences. And that's a thing you can do that a lot of people don't think of. And it's really not that far. And you can do it in just about any part of Mexico. So uh, like that would be the one thing that comes immediately to mind. But Tokyo, like has the best high quality food in the world, better French food than France, Italian food, the upper end equivalent to Italy. Just go there and keep on eating. Uh, That's kind of obvious, but I think not enough people do it. And then in France, you know, go to second and third tier cities, Italy, go to the south, go to weird places where no one else goes. That's pretty incredible. Balkans, anywhere in Latin America. uh, I mean, there's so much in the world. It's both a human experience and great food. And it really does not cost much money except for Tokyo. And I lied real quick. One follow-up question to what I asked. So for, for the, I'm very intrigued by, by the, your, your, your advice on how to great, get a great uh, Mexican food experience. So would you just want, wander on out off the beaten path? As you said, you need to know a little bit of Spanish, but you just, did you approach some people or did you know someone introduced you to someone or is it just a matter of talking to a couple people and seeing what you can do and scoring an invite? I knew people, but you can just talk to taxi drivers and get to know people when you're there. I do think you need more than just a little Spanish. You don't have to be fluent 
but like your 40 words of high school Spanish are not quite enough to do it. You have to be able to speak and interact in some way. Uh, and that's just inexhaustible. Mexico is a source of food. And like, don't even go to Oaxaca. Go to the town, you know, 10 kilometers outside of Oaxaca. It's way better, even cheaper, and a lot more interesting. So don't think like, oh, I went to Oaxaca, I had mole, and I tried the crickets. I'm so exotic. Like, come on. <laughs> It's like saying you had a pretzel on Fifth Avenue, right? Like, get real, do something a little challenging. <laughs> Fair enough. Good advice. Tyler, it's, it's been great chatting with you about this. I've had a lot of fun. Um, let, let's let's wrap this up formally here. Let me say, as I do to everyone in the, in, uh, the episodes when I record with them, because I want them to ultimately have the last word. Let me ask, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here? on our conversation on food overall, where you can find some of the best food, why Scarborough is the dining capital of the world. I mean, we, we, we meant in many fun different directions, but if you wanted someone to remember one or two or just a few things from everything we've talked about and your thoughts on food, any economists getting lunch, what would those be? What's the takeaways, if anything? Well, beyond the practical advice, these to me are classical liberal ideas. It's about trade in materials, immigration of human beings, individual excellence and entrepreneurship, competitive markets, buyers and sellers coming together. So every great meal you have, I want people to kind of kneel down and, and thank markets and capitalism and principles of liberty, because that's what's behind it all. Love it. That's a great place to leave it off. Tyler Cowan, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Alex, thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>